Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So I'm flying back from Boston, and I, uh, I'm sitting in a seat next to a woman who seemed like a very nice lady. Mm-hmm. And before the flight had taken off, she's listening, well, she's watching something on her phone. Okay. It, maybe on Netflix or something like that. It was a drama of some sort. But instead of listening to it with headphones on, she's just listening to it on the speaker. Oh. And it is echoing throughout the cabin. Not not even just like listening to it on a low volume. It was loud. And as the plane is getting ready to taxi for takeoff, mm-hmm. right before that happens, the uh, cabin steward comes over, the flight attendant, and says, uh, ma'am, do you have earphones? And she said, yes. <laughs> and uh, she said, would you mind um, putting them in, please? Or or turning off the, uh, the sound. We can't have all this, you know, the sound in the cabin. Mm. Pilot's getting ready to take off. And she said... In a very belligerent tone, are you going to don't talk everyone else? Uh, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> I mean, I think I get the gist of what she was trying to say. Right. But, uh, and, and by the way, the uh, flight attendant did not don't talk everyone else. Sure. Then this person went on to grumble a complaint. I don't know why you're picking on me. I'm not doing anything wrong. When clearly you're doing something wrong. But to her credit, she puts her phone away and she takes out a book. And she starts reading. Oh, that's good. Until we get, I don't know, maybe a mile or so away from the runway. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're still climbing in altitude. Okay. She decides to take her shoes off. I, you know, I've done that. I've slipped my feet out of my shoes of on, on a flight. You know, but um, usually there's no one sitting next to me. I try to be conscious and also... Or the person's me. Yeah. And I don't care. Yeah, you don't care. Or like... And, and, and by the way, I my feet are clean. And okay? it depends, I think, on the flight. Like, I think that there are different expectations on a zippy flight versus like, you know, a 17-hour flight. Yeah. No, I agree. It, you know, it, it, our, our flight to Bangkok... I wouldn't have minded if people had taken their pants off. Honest really. to goodness. Like, I, I get it. Anything I, that you can do to make this experience less awful, yeah. have at. I actually, in my long flight delirium, was considering how I was thinking I'd, I'd get into my carry-on luggage, get some comfy pants out, mm-hmm. 
uh, take them into the bathroom and then change and, and come back. I should have done that, but uh, but I toughed it out because I didn't want to make it tough. I didn't want it to climb over people. See, and... that's why I wear comfy clothes to the airport. That's smart. Like I appreciate the vibe of days gone by flight, you know, where people like dressed up for the airport and it was a fashion show. You know, it was it was an elite group of people who could fly. Everybody uh, in the uh, 60s when they flew, they all dressed like Jackie Kennedy. Right. Yes, absolutely. But now I'm like, do these pants have a stretchy waist? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the woman on the other side of me was wearing pajama bottoms and flip-flops. For real, I don't care. Have at it. You I know? do not care. So anyway, this woman, she takes out, she takes her, her, her shoes off. Mm-hmm. I almost said she took her feet off. I, I wish she had. Um, and she takes out her feet. She takes out her feet. She takes her shoes off. And I'm like, mm, okay. And then she takes her socks off mm. about five minutes later. And she had some pretty gnarly feet, I have to say. Okay. Then, as oh. she's reading, she's picking her toenails. No. With her with her fingers. No, I hate that. And like flicking whatever the debris Stop was. Stop it! <laughs> You're just making this up now. I'm not making it up. I I would have changed seats if I hadn't paid extra for that one. Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, I needed the extra leg room, and apparently she did too, so she could pick her toenails. It's just kind of mindlessly. Yeah. See, that's the thing is, I when I am around that many people, I do not get mindless. I am never not (laughs) thinking that someone's seeing me. And I feel like a lot of people just kind of launch into this zone where they're like, oh, I'm all by myself. And it's like, no, no, you're surrounded by 200 people who are breathing your same air, Mm -hmm. who are not interested in having your foot shavings near them. Thank you. They don't want to hear your conversations. Do not eat eggs. I'm like that even when I'm alone. <laughs> even when I'm alone, I assume that somehow, somewhere, I'm being observed by somebody. <laughs> even if even if it's just future me. I don't know. I've several times had to like slap your hand away from your feet because you're picking at your cuticles. <laughs> and you're like, what? I'm That's, pushing my cuticles back. And yeah. I'm like, not while I am in this bed with you. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Anyway. Oh, also, I'm sick. I'm so sorry you have to listen to me. And because of that, we thought maybe you should go first because your your throat's pretty sore. Yeah. And mine's just starting to get sore. Awesome. So, yeah. Thanks for that. So what's uh, what's your topic today? Pizza dates back thousands of years. Flatbreads existed with toppings uh, in ancient Egypt, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, pizza. It was a thing. But modern pizza, the way that we think of it, originated in Naples, Italy in the 18th century. Initially, it was a very simple dish, bread dough, tomato sauce, cheese. It quickly gained popularity in Naples and spread throughout Italy and eventually the rest of the world. And today, pizza is enjoyed in so many variations and styles with countless toppings and regional specialties. Stuffed crust. When, and, when they when they came out with shouting stuff, out stuffed crust, stuffed crust. <laughs> when they came out with stuffed crust, uh-huh. I thought, "Wow, technology has really brought this us is to our the, pinnacle, the golden like, age of <laughs> humans of, in, in fast foods." And I thought it would be fun to look at some of those specialties, like how does pizza vary from place to place? Oh, that's interesting because you go to Italy. And you order pizza, and it's often not what you expect. And I knew a person that went over with uh, with her, her brother, and they ordered pizza, you know, in Italy, and it came back, and it was more traditional Italian pizza. Sure. And the and her brother sent it back, 
and said, no, this is not how pizza's made. Oh, my God. No. Oh, so you have some terrible to be friends. be an American. <laughs> We're going to have to cut all this out. No. The style of pizza that originated in Naples is made with buffalo mozzarella, tomatoes, and not just any tomatoes. The tomatoes have to be San Marzano tomatoes or Pomodori Pelati tomatoes. Both are grown in the rich volcanic soil south of Mount Vesuvius. They're picked at peak ripeness, and then they're canned within hours to preserve that fresh taste and quality of the tomato. And I bet the tomatoes that are grown on the side of that volcano have a special flavor yeah, property of because of the, uh, the richness of the soils. Right. Now, according to Fave Family Recipes, who noted that they learned some of these details while on a tour hosted by the greatest tomatoes of Europe and the ANICAV, the Italian Association of Canned Tomatoes Producers, which I think is hilarious that it's a thing. (laughs) But I love that a group of people is so committed to the thing that they're interested in. You know how... Like the freaks are a great example. You can go in and be like, hey, does anyone know anything about... 17th century can openers? Right. And someone will be like, yes, I happen to be an expert. And I love that shit. I love those little micro nuggets of knowledge that nobody else knows. And it's beyond me why they would have um, can openers in the 17th century since, you know, cans canned goods had not been invented yet. Anyway, there was a huge worldwide campaign, the largest that UNESCO has ever seen, to make the art of the Neapolitan pizza part of the intangible cultural heritage. It is listed by the UNESCO committee as a specific way of making this specific pizza. You have to do it the right way. Otherwise, you can't call it a Neapolitan pizza, which I think is really cool. You've got to protect your brand. Moving away from Naples, and as we we go through these styles of pizza, we're going to be going further away from Naples. And I actually checked the mileage on every single one of these. So please recognize the effort that I put in. Roman Pizza Altaglio, which basically means pizza by the slice, is a variety of pizza. It's baked in a large rectangular tray, often cooked in a wood fire oven and generally sold um, in square or rectangular slices by weight. This mm. is very commonly sold like as street food or in quick carry out kind of places. And you, you pay for the pizza by its weight, which I think is really cool. Kind of like um, ice cream places like uh, Sweet Frogs or yeah. you, you, went and you put anything you want on your ice cream. And then they just weigh it at the register. Yeah. My friend and her husband went to Sweet Frog when they first opened in Bangor. It was a big deal. And they were both a little bit surprised by how much they ended up spending there the first time because they just got so excited about all the toppings. And she was like, here's my $17 ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, it doesn't take much. No. Rome also gave us pizza Bianca. That's prepared with no sauce whatsoever and instead topped with salt and olive oil and chopped rosemary is pretty often sprinkled on top. So it's, it's basically like focaccia. But I'm not complaining because I... All day long, I will eat a focaccia. Moving further away, unlike Neapolitan pizza, which uses fresh and creamy mozzarella, the Sicilian pizza uses a hard sheep's cheese. And breadcrumbs are often sprinkled on 
top of the pizza toppings, and that helps facilitate even distribution of the oil. Now, when you say hard sheep, do you mean uh, barnyard animals that have had a tough upbringing? Yeah, they're like street sheep. Street sheep, gotcha. Again, would produce a very unique flavor. Right. Hmm, This cheese tastes like sadness and urine. I was going to say hard knocks, but yours was much more emotional and... (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. Now, I couldn't get in touch with Amber in time. Flamkush. So that's that's what we're talking about now. Usually I have Amber say my German things. Amber, our dear friend and road manager. Yes, who just celebrated her one-year wedding anniversary. It looks like they had a wonderful time on their trip, and I'm a little insulted that they didn't invite me. (laughs) Anyway, uh... That thing, also known as tarte flambe in in various regions, they're almost the same thing. One is the German name, one is the French name, and that's because it's a specialty of a region of France that's near the border with Germany and was sort of Germany for a while. In 1871, Alsace was annexed to the new German Empire following its victory with the Franco-Prussian War, and that occupation lasted until 1918. So kind of France, kind of Germany. Anyway, it's bread dough rolled out very thinly in the shape of a rectangle or an oval, and that's covered with fromage blanc. White cheese. Or fresh cheese, or creme fraiche, and then slit Thinly sliced onions and lardon. What's lardon? Um, it's like a bacony kind of thing, I think. Oh, okay. Like a, I know it's 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 piggy. Piggy. Yeah. Piggish. Are they heart pigs from the streets of France? Wee oui, wee, oui, motherfucker. <laughs> see, it's funny because mm-hmm. see what it's too late, right? Because it's, it's, it's like comedy strata. <coughs> it really hurt my throat, oh, though. Oh. I made a mistake. Hungarian pizza also known as Langalo, is the Eastern European version of the Italian classic. It's made on something like focaccia, often with Hungarian sausage and bacon. It's a, it's a popular Hungarian street food. Hmm. But it's deep fried, and it's often served with sour cream or yogurt and topped with grated cheese, garlic, and or butter. Deep fried pizza? Deep fried pizza. Yes, please. Yeah, so it doesn't come out of an oven. It's deep or sometimes shallow fried. But either way, I think definitely worth trying. Do you remember the time that I think we yeah we were in uh, old time. old Quebec mm-hmm. and uh, we went to a restaurant that had deep fried sushi. Oh yes, yeah, they were trying it out on their menu, so they let us have it for on free. A bali so friggin' good. You they were be- so sweet that restaurant. And I think that was the place where I said gracias to the server, and they were still really nice to us. Yeah. It was, you know, the French district, and you said gracias, and our French uh, server said de nada. (laughs) (laughs) Coca de trampo mallorquina, or traditional Mallorcan salad on top of pizza, is a very popular deal in Spain. Is it deep fried, though? No. I would eat a deep-fried shoe. You could take a Converse All-Star and pan-fry it, and I would eat it. All right, I'm going to shut up now. (laughs) This starts with an olive oil-soaked flaky crust, and that alone sounds amazing, topped with sweet or savory toppings, mushrooms, spinach, anchovies, olives, pine nuts, and often citrus rind, which I think is really interesting. Zapiekanka. 
Zapiekanka has been a popular street food in Poland since the 1970s. It's like, okay, so it's like a toasted open-faced sandwich and a pizza had a baby. It's like a long roll of bread, like a baguette or something like that, sliced in half, topped with sautéed mushrooms, cheese, and sometimes other toppings, and then it's served with hot ketchup. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess they're kind of version of a marinara, but it's widely consumed, widely loved. And I love like a like a French bread pizza. So I think that I could definitely be down for it. I might put the hot ketchup on the side and, and then maybe just a little dip to try. Like, like a dipping sauce. Yeah. Sophia. That word was Sophia. <laughs> and it has many spellings, many versions of the word and many origin stories. It's also known as Armenian pizza, Turkish pizza. And also Arab pizza. It is a Middle Eastern dish typically made in the shape of a round pizza and filled with seasoned ground mutton or beef or lebna and sometimes vegetables. It gets real puffy and round on the outside and it looks like it's very crispy on the outside and then kind of bowls into this filling of it looks incredible. Mm. It and sounds, I love Lebna. So. It sounds incredible. Right? I think we should go on a pizza tour. Yes. Moving a little further away, 3,188 kilometers to be exact, the national dish of Georgia, Chachapuri. It hails from the Ajara region on the coast of the Black Sea and has three distinct features. It's an open-faced boat shape. It's melted cheese on the inside, sometimes other like meaty toppings. And then there's a raw egg served on top with a pat of butter. And traditionally, you take a fork and you mix the egg and the melted cheese and the butter all on top. And then you rip the sides of the breads, like the crust off and dip it in that mixture. And it's said to be incredibly like rich and fatty and filling and delicious and satisfying. Now, I don't love a raw egg, but yeah. I can get on board with dipping. Yeah, me too. But the phrase that comes to my mind is searing abdominal cramps. All right. Yeah, can I have one of your pizzas? A hold the salmonella, please. Hey, hey. Hmm? People do it all the time. They love it. They've built up a tolerance. I understand Quit being that. a baby. Are you calling me a pizza baby? Because I kind of like that. <laughs> Pizza is actually Iceland's most popular fast food. Flatbaka is the official word for pizza in Icelandic. And it, interestingly, their version of Hawaiian pizza, you know, ham and pineapple, also served with bananas. Mm. I don't know how I feel about that. In fact, banana is a pretty popular topping in Iceland. There's concoctions like bananas and blue cheese. Or a dessert-style banana pizza. When, yeah, I was going to say, when does it stop being pizza and begins being dessert? There must be some sort of a line that you cross. Talking about pizza, there's always going to be traditionalists that say this is, this is not, you know. But mm. in the general sense, pizza is a flat, bready type thing with stuff on top of yeah. it. You yeah. know, that's just kind of, it's like a sandwich. A sandwich can be so many things. And I think we've all kind of... Well, not maybe all of us, but I think a lot of us have come to accept that pizza is the same. No, that makes sense. There are those who call a hot dog a sandwich. I think that technically they're correct, but I, I don't think th a hot dog's more like a taco. I don't think of it as a sandwich. And, and can you consider a taco a sandwich? Probably. Some might. I wouldn't. 
moving to New York, 7,095 kilometers from Naples. Gennaro Lombardi is credited with officially establishing the first American pizza restaurant in 1905 in New York. That was the hub, obviously, of Italian immigration in the U.S. at the time. And New York Pie, it's large, floppy, typically folded lengthwise pizza. It's very identifiable as New York pizza. It's not my favorite, but it is a classic. Elephant ears. Every pizza place claims to have the best pizza Mm. in New York City, and they will all advertise it the same way. It's like, best pizza in here, and it's like, no, you you can't all. You can't all. You can't. Anyway, moving along, this is the reason I started researching this. I had Detroit-style pizza for the first time this week. I had never heard of it until you uh, you ordered some. What an interesting backstory. I am obsessed. I had it for the first time six days ago, and I had it for the second time a day ago because it is amazing and incredible, and I love it. And I think if you go into it thinking, I'm going to have like a New York-style slice of pizza, and you get Detroit-style pizza, you're not going to be pleased because it's a very different animal altogether. It's so interesting. Detroit-style pizza, first and foremost, is noted for its shape. It is a rectangle because traditionally in Detroit-style pizza lore, they were first made in blue steel automotive pans. Of course, Detroit, known as like the automotive capital of the U.S., these factory workers would have access to these pans and Nana's pizza recipe, and they'd... (laughs) friggin' make these pizzas in these automotive pants so they're deep, airy crusts, and then the exterior gets covered in cheese, so it's kind of like a crispy, crunchy, caramelized crust on the outside. Mm. And then, because it's so deep, you have to put sauce on top of the cheese, otherwise the cheese would get all burnt and weird, and so it's layers like you wouldn't necessarily expect on a pizza, and it's And when you cut into it, you can see like the strata of the pizza and it is a friggin meal. It looks pretty hearty. I tried a little bit of it last night and not not to my liking. It was a little more herbaceous than I prefer. Well, it's also the toppings that I got. I got roasted vegetables, broccoli, banana peppers and spinach. But I can see why that would be a very popular commodity. And the idea that they bake them in automotive pans from the factory, like stuff that they put car parts in, it's... I love it so much. That's so interesting. As soon as we're done recording this, I'm going to heat some up in the oven and I'm going to consume it. I'm going to have a pan-seared shoe. Moving along to the Midwest of the U.S., Quad City Pizza. Come on, eat the pizza. And eat it. It's a choo-choo train. It's a chewy crust. Michelle, Tamika, and Tanya want to ride this train. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Quad City is a unique style of pizza that originates from the Quad Cities, made up of actually five cities, not four, which is very confusing. They're nestled directly on the Iowa-Illinois border. And the thing that makes this style of pizza unique is the addition of malt to the crust. So it the crust has this like rich, dark, nutty color and flavor. And then the pizza is hand-tossed, and it's cut in strips rather than oh. in slices. 
this is something I'd never heard of, but I haven't spent a lot of time in the Midwest, to be fair. I did once go to Omaha, Nebraska. That's actually, Omaha, I will always remember as being the place where I accidentally left my pillow in the hotel that we were staying at, and they sent it to me. They put it in a box, and they sent it to my home. I I cannot thank the people of Omaha enough for being so kind and thoughtful and wonderful that they would friggin' box up my pillow and send it to me. They didn't charge me those, for those, it. Those days of food, beverage, and hospitality are long gone. That's not true. They would just say now, no, no. We That's didn't, not true. We, we, go fly a kite or something go. because that was some real old man shit right there. There's goodness in the world. It comes from everywhere. It comes from me and you. Moving along. Now, Chicago's pizza is really a pizza pie. It's got tall walls of biscuit crust encasing a filling that's at least an inch thick. It's mozzarella on the bottom, toppings on top, and then sausage, if added, is put in raw. And then sauce is slathered on last with a dusting of parm. It's kind of similar to Detroit-style pizza, but more pie-like. In St. Louis, it's cracker thin, the exact opposite, all the way around, and it's cut into squares, which is referred to as the party cut, I think is sassy and fun. The toppings hit all the way to the end. It's a sweet sauce, and there's a special kind of cheese called provelle, which is a cheddar Swiss provolone and liquid smoked cheese. According to this source, it's kind of eating like a really big plate of cheese and crackers. I'm down for that. Yeah. I I do that often. Mm Mm-hmm. 9,850 kilometers from Naples is Japan. Okonomiyaki is made with cabbage, and it is like a savory pancake made with scallions and assorted meat and seafood, and it is served pizza style with traditional toppings on top. Octopus, shrimp, pork, yam, kimchi. Not everyone would agree that this is a pizza, but a lot of people call it Japanese pizza. And finally, Korean fusion pizza. This combines Western-style pizza with the Korean flair. Korean pizza is most associated with the toppings that are offered at popular fast food chains, like Domino's, which is very popular in Korea. The premium section of its website has combinations like cheesecake sand with cheesecake mousse and shrimp. Domino's also offers the churrasco cheese roll pizza, a Brazilian barbecue and cheesy bun mashup with toppings of mounds of beef and vegetables encircling glistening cheese rolls. Then Korean's Pizza Hut offers a star edge pizza. So the the shape is the edges are cut into like little star shapes. So it's kind of nice. And those have cinnamon, apple, nut or cranberry flavored cream cheese and a surf and turf topping like sausage, shrimp, calamari, bacon or steak toppings with broccoli. So traveling almost 10,000 kilometers from Naples, uh, we've seen a lot of different types of dishes. Some, you may say, are not pizza, but I thought it was really fun to examine different places and what they offer uh, and consider pizza. I think probably the the thing I think is the weirdest is that hot ketchup. I got my information from Insider.com, Roads and Kingdoms, Wikipedia, Daily News Hungary, Eater.com, and First We Feast. Oh, and food and wine. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. 
and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer this message is sponsored by green light you know as your kids get older there are some things about parenting that gets easier i remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece if you put your pants on i'll give you some fresca and when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right it's a lot easier to manage them Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now... That thing in the middle. We take you back to the year 1943, to the heated skies of World War II. Meet Owen J. Baggett, a second lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps. March 31st, Baggett and his crew were engaged in a daring bombing run over Burma when they were suddenly ambushed by Japanese fighters. Their B-24 was crippled. Smoke and flames licked the fuselage. Baggett and his crew were forced to bail out. As they descended, Japanese pilots circled back, hoping to pick off easy targets. 
As one enemy fighter drew close, so close that Baggett said he could see the whites of the pilot's eyes, he did something remarkable. He pulled out his 45 caliber service pistol and took a shot. Incredibly, he hit the pilot. The fighter plane, suddenly uncontrolled, spiraled downwards and crashed. Owen J. Baggett parachuted to safety and became a legend, the only person ever known to have downed an enemy aircraft using nothing but a pistol. Got an email from Kimmy. I've been listening to Boo since uh, about three weeks after you started, and after 538 episodes, I finally experienced one of the coolest relations slash not quite Boo effects. I'm related to the people who passed in the Japanese balloon bomb in the <gasps> USA during World War II. Oh my goodness. I've grown up hearing this story of how it happened. I've had a lot of weird deaths on my dad's side of family. And it was really cool to finally get some actual history about it. I actually had to pause and restart the episode because I couldn't believe you were actually talking about my family. Mm -hmm. You guys were the first podcast, my first podcast, and my favorite since day one. Would love to see you in uh, Montana someday. I'd love to go to Montana someday. Your humor reminds me of my favorite aunt and uncle, so I obviously feel a bit of love for you guys. Thanks for all your hard work. Keep flying that freak flag. Kimmy. Hannah sent us a message. Hi, guys. I had the strangest boo effect. I only discovered the podcast a few months ago, so I'm binging my way through while grooming doggies at work. I was listening to episode 282 on the Jonestown Massacre. I finished work and tootle on home. I stick on Frank and Gracie on Netflix, and in the episode, there's this very boring party, and someone says, this is the worst party I've been to, and I was at Jonestown. <laughs> oh, that's dark. Somebody else replied, is there any of that punch? Because this is terrible. <laughs> I thought this was very strange indeed. Love you guys from the UK. And that's where we get the term drinking the Kool-Aid. Thanks, Hannah. Emily sent us an email. Kat and Jethro just recently discovered your show by listening to Dan and Lindsay from Scared to Death. Aw. We love Dan and Lindsay. She goes on to say, what are some of the podcasts that you listen to? One I've just started listening to and I really, really enjoy is Southern Gothic. Ah, yes. You've been talking about that lately. You love the spooky. Not only do I love the spooky, I really love the spooky from the Deep South. There's so much history in the South. Right. And so many creepy things have happened there. And you can step into the world of the unknown and unravel the dark history and infamous legends of the American South with Southern Gothic. It says so right on their website. You were telling me that they did the story of the Bell Witch, which you know is one of my favorite stories. A couple of my favorites. You know, I'm a Civil War military history buff. Brandon did an episode, uh, Mystery of the Confederate Submarine. Does it have something to do with missing gold? No, okay. it's the world's first successful combat submarine. It mysteriously disappeared off the coast of Charleston. Ooh. Southern Gothic is a narrative history podcast. And the way that it's produced, it's really very immersive sound design. And Brandon, who hosts it, uh, it, says, it says on his site, we quote, we like to take the stories you all hear from your mama and go out and find what really happened. <laughs> So they do the in-depth historical research, like they do it right. Yeah, unlike us, we just babble on endlessly. <laughs> Southern Gothic is produced by siblings Brienne and Brandon Schexenider. Brandon is the host, and Brienne provides extensive research for each episode. And she is actually a professionally trained archivist, so it's nice to have one of those in the family. Why aren't one of your nieces or nephews an archivist? <laughs> I don't know. 
Now, if y'all are ready to head out to the swamp and give Southern Gothic a listen, you can head over to southerngothicmedia.com slash follow for links to all your favorite podcast apps. That's southerngothicmedia.com slash follow. That is, if you dare. Oh. I dare you to listen. I think you mean, I dare y'all. This podcast will give you your enjoys all the way plum. <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We were watching you during that story. We saw what you were doing. Damn, you turn us on. This is The Box of Oddities. Some say that lurking at the periphery of our vision, shrouded in darkness, are entities whose existence defies the principles of known science. Entities that we call shadow people. Shadow people are said to exist somewhere between our reality and the paranormal. These beings present themselves as dark humanoid silhouettes. Sightings of shadow people have become glo a global phenomenon. Among people of all ages and backgrounds, they have been spoken of throughout history, but sightings appear to be escalating nowadays. Oh. For some reason, the accounts are surprisingly consistent and paint a picture of a spectral visitor that's, uh, that's hard to ignore. Despite their elusive nature, the impact that they have had on witnesses is um, curious. And I would say full of fear as well, too. I mean, the whole idea of there being some sort of an entity that we can't quite perceive. What is that exactly? Eye floaties. The effects of glaucoma, perhaps, mm. is, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, maybe. I don't know. One of the most widely known experiences with shadow people was reported by an author whose name is Heidi Hollis. She wrote extensively 
about these entities. She described them as dark silhouettes with human shapes and profiles that flicker in and out of peripheral vision. Her encounters often filled her with a sense of dread, uh, an effect frequently reported by people who have had similar experiences with Mm. these, uh, quote, shadow people. One of the most impactful encounters that occurred to her was while she was a college student in the 1990s. She wrote a book about this called The Secret War, and she recounts that one night she was working late in her dorm room when she caught a glimpse of something out of the corner of her eye. Turning quickly, she found herself face to face with a dark human-shaped figure, unlike any conventional human presence that, that she was familiar with. She said this figure was darker than the surrounding darkness, solid, but devoid of any discernible features. Mm. Its form was unmistakably humanoid. It was standing upright at the edge of her room, staring at her. Understandably, she said she had an intense feeling of dread. I would just, I would have to change my underwear. So this is why I think that clappers should become part of our households again. Because clap, clap. The lights go on. Lights go on. Mm-hmm. They should make the clappers part of uh, standard equipment for ghost hunters. As she tried to confront this figure, it moved. Ooh. And not like a regular human, but in quick, disjointed movements, as though it was teleporting short distances. It seemed to scamper up the wall. Ew. It advanced toward her. Stop it. Crossing the room in a few abrupt motions. Gross. Before the figure could reach her, She shouted at it and challenged it and demanded that it leave her alone. At that moment, the figure dissipated. (laughs) I'm just picturing like a a little petite woman standing up on her bed. No, (laughs) absolutely not. She said when the figure dissipated, it looked like smoke blown away by the wind. It was as if this figure had been absorbed back into the darkness from which it had emerged. Mm. Her encounter, like many others who have experienced shallow people, didn't leave her with... I've had experiences with a lot of shallow people. (laughs) And you can hear about them on the shallow end with Schneebly and Toth. Wow, way to turn that into a cross-promote. All right, shadow people. Like many other encounters that people have had, it didn't leave her with any physical evidence. Just an indelible mark on her mind, which really encouraged her to investigate this further. In another high-profile case, Jason Offit, a renowned paranormal investigator and author, has documented shadow people encounters in his book Darkness Walks, The Shadow People Among Us. Among these many accounts, he detailed a personal experience he had with a particular variant of shadow people. His encounter took place late at night in the seclusion of his home. He was alone working on his research when he felt an abrupt shift in the room's atmosphere. Mm. A cold chill ran down his spine, and that prompted him to turn away from his work. And that's when he saw it. A dark humanoid figure standing at the periphery of his vision. As he turned to face it entirely head-on, he was struck by something he had never seen before, and he had seen these shadow people before. But this time, it had two glowing red eyes. So he's had multiple instances where he's encountered shadow people? Yes. What's going on there? It's the same with Heidi Hollis, the uh, person that we spoke of just before. She's had many, many encounters with it. 
Maybe it's just some people, I don't know, like empaths or uh, psychics or they're just aware of... Sensitives. Yeah, they're aware of stuff that most people aren't. All right. This figure was unlike that typical fleeting apparition associated with shadow people, did not immediately disappear. Instead, it just stood there, observing Offutt, its red eyes never leaving his eyes. And he said that uh, the fear he felt at that moment was nothing like he had ever experienced before or since in his life. The room around him felt oppressive, as if the air had actually thickened. So he gathered up his courage and he tried to confront the entity, but it didn't seem phased by any of his attempts. It just stood its ground. It continued to observe him with this chilling gaze, just maintaining its presence. It was only when Offit began to shout at the shadow entity, demanding that it leave, that the figure finally disappeared, leaving behind an emptiness and an eerie, dead-like silence. This added a whole new layer to his understanding of shadow people. He had seen them before, like I, like I mentioned, but he had never experienced something this frightening and this direct, almost confrontational. Hmm. And the way that both of these people got the shadow entity to leave seems to indicate that if you become a little more aggressive, they leave. If you stand your ground. You just have to be like, no, for real, it's time to go. Get out. I think it's interesting that so many of these supernatural characters do have those boundaries. Like vampires, you have to let them in. You have to invite someone. Like a vampire just can't come in. You got to invite them in. Mm. These guys, if you're just stern with them, they're like, oh, cool. That's fine. I'll go. I'm going to give you a chance to leave now. And if you don't, I will speak sternly to you. Mm -hmm. If you still don't leave, I will continue to be stern. Now, these encounters, of course, border on uh, urban legend or folklore. And it's interesting to note that um, ancient shadow people were documented by the Greek and Romans all the way up to modern accounts in popular media. And the consistency of the narrative is it's it's difficult to to ignore. One researcher, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, argues that the widespread and historical occurrences of such accounts lends credibility to this phenomenon. (laughs) The experiences are too personal and emotional to dismiss as just illusions. (laughs) She theorizes that these entities exist in parallel universes and occasionally cross over into our dimension, and that's why they have such an elusive nature. One theory points out that shadow people have been long associated with spiritual theories, predominantly the belief that shadow people could be earthbound spirits or ghosts. This theory deeply connects with numerous cultural and religious beliefs, and Mm. it proposes that uh, these shadowy entities are remnants of deceased individuals who, for one reason or another, haven't moved on. Now, why do we call them shadow people rather than just ghosts then? Is it just because some people think that and some don't or because... Great question. This theory suggests that shadow people could be a unique type of spirit manifestation where the entity does not or perhaps cannot materialize completely, presenting instead just a dark, vaguely humanoid shape. This could be due to a variety of reasons in this theory, a lack of energy and unwillingness to fully appear or a unique property of these particular types of spirit. I see. Many who uh, believe this theory or propose it believe that the spirits become earthbound due to unfinished business, unresolved emotions, or strong attachments to their past lives. 
the emotional energy of these spirits might contribute to the discomfort or the dread that the witnesses feel when confronted by these things. Mm. James von Prague, renowned psychic. Who's, Sounds like a psychic name. It is a psychic name. And, and his books uh, inspired, and he was a technical consultant for the TV show Ghost Whisperer, which we watched. I think I've seen about bit. maybe half a season. Something yeah. like that. He suggests that our physical world is layer, layered with spiritual dimensions mm. that most people cannot perceive. From this perspective, shadow people could be spirits moving within these different dimensions, occasionally becoming somewhat visible to those sensitive enough to see them. That makes sense. Another hypothesis is that these beings are interdimensional entities. And as you know, quantum physics guy, mm. quantum physics has toyed with the idea of multiple dimensions for decades. And uh, if such dimensions do exist, it's plausible that they could occasionally perceive their inhabitants in our reality. It suggests this theory does that shadow people are residents of parallel universes, interdimensional beings that have found a way to momentarily breach the boundary between their world and ours. And just pop in. Sounds far-fetched, of course, but it's rooted in quantum mechanics and theoretical physics. Physicist and author Brian Greene describes it this way. Consider each universe as a slice of bread in a cosmic loaf. These slices are typically separate and distinct, each existing in its own right. However... Like a Detroit-style pizza, (laughs) if you will. However, what if the slices were not perfectly isolated? Mm. What if, under certain circumstances... One universe could influence another, perhaps bumping up against it, allowing passage from one to the next. As cheese might melt into your vegetable layer. This is where the theory of interdimensional beings, or in our case, shadow people, comes into play. These entities could belong to a universe adjacent to ours, their reality occasionally bumping up against ours. Now, given the vastly different physical laws that might govern their universe, our perception of them could be limited or distorted, resulting in their manifestation as fleeting shadow figures. Physicist Lisa Randall's work on gravity and extra-dimensional theories supports this idea in her book, Warped Passages. She discusses the potential existence of hidden dimensions that only interact with ours through gravity. And if these dimensions harbor life, it's plausible these beings' influence on our dimension might manifest as some sort of anomaly. That's interesting. Like the shadow people. Delicious, cheesy shadow people. The interdimensional theory could explain the transient nature of the sightings of these shadow people. They may not reside in our dimension long enough for us to perceive them fully or might only partially cross the dimensional barrier leading to their blurred, shadowy appearance. Mm. Now, Obviously, this is a theory that's speculative and dependent upon unproven aspects of modern physics, but it does provide a compelling and scientifically rooted explanation for the presence of shadow people. Another physiological explanation could be shadow people are the result of hypnagogic hallucinations, visual anomalies that occur in the state between wakefulness and sleep, like that alpha state. Oh, okay. This hypothesis is supported by numerous accounts of shadow sightings during these transitional states. People will be dozing off or they will have been asleep. Right. Yeah, there's not a ton of shadow people sightings while you're making lunch. Although there have been. And finally, some propose that shadow people are manifestations of our collective consciousness. 
Shaped by our cultural fears and anxieties, Carl Jung theorized that uh, images and symbols common to humanity can manifest in reality under certain conditions. If enough people believe that something is real. Like the ass end of the Santa movie. What was it? Oh, it was Elf. You know, when the whole town was like watching, you remember? Yeah. And they had the news people and they were like, I believe. Yeah. And then... And then Santa could fly again. That's exactly what I was getting at. Delicious, cheesy Santa. While science may not have a definitive answer to the shadow people phenomenon, there's significant experimental evidence and historical prevalence that makes a strong case for their existence. A strong case? Strong case. Now, we're just beginning to map the contours of the human mind and the psyche. And until we definitively do that, we may never know, may never understand fully the mysteries Mm. of the universe like this, shadow people, or the depth of our collective psyche. The riddle of the shadow people remains an open one. My source information, the Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits by R.E. Guiley. The Fabric of the Cosmos, Space, Time, and the Texture of Reality by Brian Greene. Man and His Symbols by Carl Jung. Parallel Worlds, A Journey Through Creation, Higher Dimensions, and the Future of the Cosmos by M. Kaku. Oh, and also Ghosts Among Us, Uncovering the Truth About the Other Side by James Bond. Prague. Uh, was this inspired by the fact that we went to see Boogeyman the other night? It was. It absolutely was. I would give that movie on a scale from one to ten, like about a four. It was so predictable, but it was good escapism. It was fun in the theater. I thought all the acting was really good. Yeah, just the plot was like, well, I know what's happening here. There there was, I love a twist at the end. Yeah. If the protagonist of the film had come out and deep fried a shoe, Mm. I wouldn't have expected that. Right, that would have have added a a whole new level. Solid six. Delicious, cheesy level. We would like to thank our most recent patrons, Kirsten, Joshua, Tiffany, and Amy. Thanks so much for joining us on Patreon, and we hope to see you on our next Zoom meeting. If you'd like to join us on Patreon, become a member of the Order of Freaks, you can do so by going to our website, theboxofoddities.com. Ad-free episodes, Zoom calls bonus episodes, a bunch of different stuff. Yeah. Theboxofoddities.com We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. 
Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>